Can you sit? I didn't bring you any snackies to bribe you with. Can you sit? And let's do a little. You're just going to fall down. I know, I know. I won't mess with you. Don't worry. You're listening to the DC Real Estate Podcast, the podcast where we focus exclusively on all things local to the DMV area. Local investors, local knowledge, local experts. Our journey starts now. Hey, welcome back to this week's episode of the DC Real Estate Podcast. My name is Russell Brazil. I am an associate broker with Arla at Properties. And I am Sarah Frank. I am a realtor, also on the District Invest team with Russell, licensed in Maryland and DC. And you can't see him, but we also have a special guest here, uh, Mr. Walter. Yes, Mr. Walter Beans, licensed in Virginia. Yep. So anyways, uh, we thought this week we would talk about assumable loans because I just closed a deal this week and this is the first time I have closed uh, a loan assumption. Um, So that was sort of an interesting experience. Yeah, it took a long time, didn't it? Yeah, so the total time I was invested in this transaction was about six months. Um, which is considerably longer than, I mean, most of them from the time I start working with the client to when we close is 60 days, maybe 90 days. Um, and, you know, of that time of the six months, 30 days was a negotiation period. And then we were under contract for five entire months. Wow. And so I've talked to a few realtors recently who have done an assumption process and thought they knew everything and then something catastrophic happened and like either the listing went bad or they had to back out and try something new. Because at face value, the process makes sense, but there's so many little exceptions and rules. So like what happened in the, in the process that set you guys back for that long? Yeah. So the one of the main problems we ran into, so the, the lender was Penny Mac. Um, and so when you're... Um, when you're doing a loan assumption, right, you're not working with your own preferred lender who's really good. You have to take whatever lender the loan is with. So we're working with Penny Mac, who's not great to start off with. And what we learned through the process is, so Penny Mac can only charge, it was about $300 their fee for the loan assumption. So they're not making any money on this. Um, and Penny Mac's a huge, huge, huge lender. At the start of this process, they had 10 underwriters in their assumption department. And as rates started to creep back down, they needed more um, labor in the underwriting world. So they took five of the underwriters out of the loan assumption department, uh, reassigned them to regular loans. So there was only five underwriters doing every single loan assumption for Penny Mac nationwide. So how many, so obviously assumptions tick up when interest rates tick up because people are like, this is a killer deal. Let's go for it. So how many transactions do you think were going on? Were you able to like look that up or at least in the DC area? I was not able to get any sort of handle on it. Right. Um, But I imagine that based on, I think in December, they had told us there was 50 files ahead of us. Um, And so I'm guessing in September when we started, there was hundreds of files ahead of us in they literally were do were still working on the file on up until an hour or so before closing. And actually, we got to the closing table and they're still still making changes. Um, 
which was very, very, very frustrating. Yeah, I bet. And so if, if you're listening, you don't know what an assumable loan is. I guess we glanced over that. But they're very popular right now in theory, not necessarily in execution, because you're, it's exactly what it sounds like. You're able to take over a previous loan that someone holds on the property and the rate that they had. So if they locked in a loan at 2.5% interest rate three years ago, you're able to take over that loan. Now there's a lot of caveats to that, and it's only really for FHA and VA loans. Right, just um, FHA and VA. And right, if they had this loan issued initially in the last few years, that interest rate is going to be really, really, really low compared to where rates are at now, 6%, 6 plus percent. When we were shopping with this client back in August initially, the rates were um, around 7%. Wow. Yeah. So was this the client wanted, did they come into it saying, I want to find an assumable loan or did this happen across a property that offered it? So we we weren't 100% set on doing an assumable loan. Um, but we created a list of properties he was interested in. And one of the things that we did also was pull a list of all the properties that were listed that had assumable loans. Um, so this was probably like his, out of 10 or 15 properties I showed him, it was probably ranked his third favorite out of the, you know, out of the 15 or so. Um, but because it had that assumable loan, that pushed it ahead for him over options one and two, which were better properties, but he would have had to get a 7% interest rate. And the interest rate on this loan was 2.75%. Wow. So what is, how does the down payment work? Was his So the other properties he was looking at for conventional, what, what kind of product was he going to use? Like, and how much money would he have to bring to closing for those versus the assumable? Yeah, great question. So the other properties we were looking at, he was going to use a VA loans. He, so he was going to do 0% down. So he was just going to really have to bring closing costs um, maybe not even that if we negotiated seller subsidy with this. So we paid eight twenty five for this property, and the mortgage balance was about seven fifty. So he was going to have to bring seventy five thousand dollars plus closing costs, say another ten ten thousand dollars or so. Um, so he needed to come to the table with eighty five thousand dollars in this situation. When the other situations he was looking at, he was going to put zero down. Yeah. So just like the closing costs is what he'd have to bring to that. Yeah. So let's talk about the VA rights. So he obviously, if he was going to use a VA for the other ones, he has the the right to use the VA loan. Yeah. When he assumes a VA loan, he still has that right, correct? If he were to go and buy another property. Yeah. Tomorrow. So when you are assuming someone else's VA loan, you are taking on that seller's mm -hmm. entitlement. Right. Um, so that seller has to be willing to give up their VA loan entitlement. Mm -hmm. We ran into a really rare situation where the seller had actually passed away. So they would not need that future entitlement. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a plus in our our favor to assume that. Um, that way he wouldn't have to use his own entitlement. Now, what they could do is uh, they, he could have used his own entitlement, but now he's going to be able to use another VA loan in the future. Um, so if you can get the seller to you know, willingly give up their entitlement, they use their certificate of eligibility instead of your certificate of eligibility, um, then that's a huge plus. But obviously, mm -hmm. You know, a lot of military people want to reuse that VA loan, so they don't want to give up their entitlement. Right. So as a buyer, it can make a lot of sense if you have the cash to make up that delta between the, the list price, the property value, and what the mortgage balance is. But as a seller, it might not make complete yeah. sense. And in this case, um, the buyer, his loan payment would have been um, somewhere north of $6,000 a month 
had he bought another property, but by buying this, he, he was a, a little bit over four thousand a month. So he ended up saving two thousand dollars a month on his monthly mortgage by by mm-hmm. going this loan assumption route. Yeah, he had to bring more money to the table, um, and we'll jump into this caveat too. He also had to over, actually overpay for the property, um, but it, he saved so much money per, on a monthly basis twenty five thousand dollars a year in payments. Um, so he's making back that money fairly quickly. And that was going to be my other question is, so like, obviously this was a six month process. Property values change quickly, especially in, it was in Alexandria, right? Or yeah, Alexandria, yeah. Yeah, so that uh, six months is a lot, like, did the price change? Did they try to renegotiate the price with you guys? No, so actually, while we were under contract, the values were probably softening in this part of Alexandria. Okay. Um, so when we... Put the property under contract. We get it under contract for eight twenty five. It took us a month of negotiations to get to that because the market value of the property was about eight hundred and ten thousand. They had it listed for eight sixty, so they added overpriced by fifty thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and my buyer still had to be willing to overpay by fifteen grand. Um, and he was because he saw the value in the lower mortgage rate. But prices probably softened during the process. Um, you know, but by the time November, December came around, the value of this property was probably down to maybe 800, maybe 795. Mm-hmm. So in the end, he's, he was paying 25 to 30 grand more than what the property was actually worth. Right. Wow. And so that kind of goes to, you know, back to sort of the idea of what properties, so what is going to work for a loan assumption? Um, so if the property is properly priced, it's going to sell fairly quickly, right? And mm-hmm. so you're not going to be able to get a seller to go into this long loan assumption process if they have a realistic value on it because they're going to sell it in seven days. Mm-hmm. So we actually need an overpriced property for this to work on, um, as well as a seller who's not willing to be reasonable and come down to the market price because if they did, then it just sell. Um, so get it overpay for the property. Um, and that kind of sucks, but it is what it is. But if it can save you one, two, three thousand dollars a month in, you know, in interest payments, um, then it might be worth it to overpay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's definitely a consideration. And well, so you, you said it took a long time. Part of that was because of the servicer. Assumable loans have to be done through the original servicer on yep. the loan, right? So you don't get like a choice. You're not, it's not like picking a title company. You have to work with whoever's servicing the loan. Um, so I guess the hope would be is that going into this higher interest rate environment, maybe they'll be staffing a little bit better when it comes to these. Hopefully, Hopefully. right? <laughs> but as we saw, right, uh, months ago with the big rise in rates, all the lenders laid off like 25% of their staffs. Yeah. Underwriters laid off, loan officers laid off. So um, as rates start to tick back down and they have more business, they don't have enough staff to handle the business. And we're running into the, even on regular transactions, we're running into delays now because they're not staffed properly. Yeah. Okay. So in theory, great, great idea to have these assumable loans. Great idea. It is a very complicated process. And um, because the loan officers have never done them, essentially, lots of mistakes happen. So like, like I said, we were making changes at the table because we we were, we were supposed to close at 1 p.m. It got pushed back to 4 p.m. because the we still didn't have lender docs. 3.30, we get the lender docs to the title company, and the um, the lender added a $4,000 monthly mortgage payment charge 
to the buyer side of the uh, transaction. Well, this was for the February payment that was due February 1st. This is something the seller should have paid. Mm -hmm. So still we're at the closing table and still having to to get the lender to fix mistakes. Um, And they didn't even think it was a mistake. So we have to walk them through. Yeah. Why my buyer shouldn't be paying the $4,000 February 1st payment because they didn't own, own the property yeah. on that date. Yeah. Um, so we were working with a great title company. Um, they were able to force things into the way they needed to happen. But, um, yeah, I mean, you're going to run into a lot of problems with these. But if you're willing to stick it out, willing to put in the work, and you have the capital to make up the difference – you might be saving thousands of dollars a month on your mortgage payment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. As of right now, so I pulled these stats last night, there are 241 homes in the D.C. metro area listed that have FHA or VA assumable loans on them. Um, not very many, right? No. And D.C. has 30, Arlington has 9, Alexandria 6, Fairfax County 53, Montgomery County 40, and the largest concentration is in PG County at 103 units. Um, so there's some properties out there and right, they're going to sell new ones will come to the market. Um, and right, even in that 241, if we wanted to do this, we got to find a stagnated one on the market that mm-hmm. is, that is overpriced in order to execute the strategy. Yeah. These aren't ones that are listed that like have, you know, the, I've seen the ones that the first line of the listing, you know, so assumable loan available two points. That's always 2.75%. Yeah. I mean, that's the rate I got on my FHA. So it sticks in my brain, but these, to be clear, the list you just said isn't people who have expressly said they'll do the assumable. So there's a little bit of convincing and educating. And yeah. that's why it's even more important to work with an agent who at least knows where to find the information because even great agents are struggling with this. So it's definitely not something to do if you're needing to get into a house ASAP, but if you have time to kill. And if the listing agent knew to actually put in the description, assume FHA or VA assumable loan, you have to also assume then that they probably price the property correctly, in which case it's probably going to sell quickly. And so the ones that are actually advertised as having the assumable loans are probably bad targets of ones to try to execute this one. You got to find the listing agents that have overpriced the property. And those ones probably don't even know to check or may not even know that uh, in this case, I had to educate the listing agent on what a loan assumption was and what the process is. And she had never heard of it. And you know, she she was of the age where she probably should have heard of it because it was happening more commonly, yeah. you know, 25 plus years ago. Maybe, um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just nosy. But like one of the first questions I when I ask seller questions is like, what's your interest rate? What kind of financing do you have? Because yeah. <laughs> I, I think I'm just nosy. But I'm like, if it's less than 3%, like I don't tell them not to sell. But I'm like, here's got some things you can do, you know. Yeah. It's, I don't know if I would refi or anything, obviously. But. I just can't imagine not asking that. But again, we see listing agents also like list dens with no windows and basements as bedrooms. So there's no stopping people on the MLS. So it was funny. I took a licensing exam this week. And one of the questions that reminded me was there's a three bedroom house listed and the septic is rated for two bedrooms. What do you list it at? Um, And this was in a different state. Um, What the heck? Yeah. And so what was your answer? (laughs) I guessed that it should be listed as two-bedroom, but obviously writing on a licensing exam doesn't tell you if you're right or wrong. You just know if you pass or fail the entire exam. But there's other considerations to be a bedroom being a bedroom. 
aside from what it's rated for. Well, I, I agree. And the thing is, this was a, this was in North Carolina. So like, I don't know the laws as well in North Carolina. I know what the answer would be here. Here, I would list it as a three bedroom. If it's they, right. they could pull the septic system out altogether. Yeah. It may not be habitable, but it's still a three-bedroom house here. But I don't if, know about If it meets the bedroom, yeah. yeah if it meets the requirements of the bedrooms. Yeah. Which are different in Maryland, D.C., and Virginia. Each have different not definitions. To go, not to go off on a tangent here, yeah. but with bedrooms. I, just, <laughs> I always I think in Baltimore. I mean, it's everywhere, but I always see basement rooms that are either people it's either 50 50 they'll list it as a bedroom let's talk like ceiling height it's 610 right it's seven feet no but oh this is i'm saying this is what i'll encounter yeah a basement that's 610 but has the legal egress window yeah. and even might have the walkout with the closet it's finished do you list it as a bedroom so that depends if you want to run into a possible code of ethics violation. I know, but I see it all the time, and yep. I didn't see it. nobody in realtor jail. So, <laughs> no, no one's in realtor jail. Um, people are getting by by calling something a bedroom that isn't. And it's important to note that the MLS does have a disclaimer on it saying um, something to the effect of like information is good but not guaranteed. Yeah, um, it's a rec room. Yeah. It's it's multi purpose space. I mean, so here's here's the thing though, if you're renting the property. You still don't say three bedrooms, but like someone would look at that. It's up to them if they want to have their kids down there or something like that's up to the renter. But from a listing perspective, you can't just be doing anything you want. No, I mean, we have to legally call it what it is. Right. And yeah. so that parent shouldn't have their kids in there. If the ceiling height is not legal, um, is there a way to prevent that? Not, not really. No, exactly. Um, and the, the only time this really comes into play, um, is if you're renting the property out on Section 8, because Section 8 is only going to give you a voucher for what the legal amount of bedrooms in the house is. So if it's a three-bedroom with a with a den, the Section 8 is going to measure that ceiling height and see, well, that's a den, it's not an extra bedroom, and not mm -hmm. give you the proper, um, you know, what you're looking for. So it really only comes up with Section 8 properties. But as a listing agent, you should not... Um, you know, puffing, you know, most listing agents aren't going out there measuring ceiling height, right? Most of them don't even realize what that it should be seven feet tall. That's the first thing I do. I take out my little laser, <laughs> like it's deal or no deal. But like from an ARV perspective, too, we work with a lot of flippers. If it's 610, it's not a bedroom, but if you finish it, it's finished square footage. It's still usable space that someone's actually going to use. Yeah. It's not legally a bedroom. And right, some neighborhoods, there may be no distinction in value between six foot ten and seven feet, but other neighborhoods there is a mm -hmm. distinction in value, yeah. um, and that's where it gets really complicated too. Yep, agreed. I'm just really opinionated about it, but I love a seven foot seven foot basement. It just changes the whole game. But I've seen a lot of six tens recently. Yeah, I, I really actually wish it could be a MLS requirement to list the ceiling height in the basement because um, I feel like half my life is spent. With uh, clients getting excited about a property, me visiting the property and finding out it's like six foot eight. And but that's like my secret talent, yeah. as I can tell from the picture. A lot of it is the door frame. So like if it's finished, look at the closet door or whatever bathroom door they have down there. If it's cropped, you know that the basement height isn't going to be tall I mean, enough. There's, there's a lot of times when you can tell, but there's yeah. times when you can, right? It's just like a picture of an unfinished space. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then... So many of these wide angle lenses, right, make that space look huge, huge. 
then you get there and you're like, oh, like I can yeah. barely stand up here. Yeah, but you're right. There's a lot of time spent just like driving to the property. First thing I do is just walk straight to the basement. Yeah, It's like inspectors too. Like uh, we had an inspection last week for, for Emma's house, my sister. We were under contract on a house. And um, I love working with these inspectors. I've used the same guy for a bunch of houses. And uh, usually he'll do the basement first and then go upstairs. This time he did the whole upstairs and then the basement. And I'm never doing that again because just the basement was just a total disaster. It's like everything was wrong that could have been wrong. So I didn't take the basement first mentality when looking at properties too. Yeah, I'm surprised he didn't do that right off the bat because most inspectors do just uh, go right to the basement. It's because we're friends and we were messing around and like it was, we were just like having fun with it, which was a mistake because it ended up being a disaster. But I mean, they have to finish the inspection anyway. So do the whole house. So we would have been in a worse mood if he had done the basement first. <laughs> would have ruined the rest of the day. Yeah, but we went to that pie place. Now we're really off topic, but there's another pie place in Baltimore. Yeah, I saw that. So yeah. I usually go to dangerously delicious pies, but you went to a new pie place. It's, I don't know if it's new. It's called Pie Time. It's just north of the park. It's like in that little elbow between Highland Town and Canton in the park. Mm-hmm. It was good. I had nothing to write home about. Dangerously delicious is really good. But this place had... Like a more, probably a more of a selection, but it took forever for them to heat up the pie. So two points off for that, but you'd like it. Yeah, I'll have to try it. Dangerously Delicious closed their um, shop in D.C., which is a b- big bummer. I didn't even know they had a D.C. shop. Yeah, they had one on H Street. Oh. They closed it. Oh, wow. I guess people in D.C. aren't buying enough pies. But you get some pies when you go to Baltimore, right? Yeah, so all the time I get, I stop there and get a pie. Stop and get a pie, yeah. Yeah, good stuff. All right, we're way off topic now. Yeah, we're off topic. Anyways, (laughs) we'll wrap this up. We'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the DC Real Estate Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to contact the hosts, reach out to them at info at dcrealestatepodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you access your podcasts.